Strange Stories UK here again for Series 3, Episode 12. This is the Maybrick Trial Podcast. So this podcast is about a supposed murder that was one of those, those highlighted by George Orwell as being a classic English murder. These classic English murders involve the middle class, sex and respectability and usually poisoning. George Orwell preferred such murders which involved class and emotions as opposed to so many modern murders of his time which he thought were brutally casual and without any obvious cause. Orwell wrote in the 1940s and it's easy to see how this trend has continued. I've already covered some of the uh, these murders, these murders preferred by Orwell. I've done Seddon, Armstrong, Bywaters and Thompson and eventually I will hope to cover all of them. The problem we have in this case is that it wasn't murder. The defendant that was found guilty was done so to protect the establishment of the time who dominated the Freemason movement. Anyhow there will be a podcast in the future in early 2021 to examine this pod. This podcast will concentrate on the court case, a famous court case of its time, the Maybrick Trial. So this podcast is about the 1889 trial of Florence Maybrick, accused of murdering her husband in Liverpool. It's one of the best examples of a person being found wrongly guilty of a murder that I've come across. The case should never have come to court. I think the case is quite similar to the Edith Thompson case where the behaviour of a married woman was on trial. Anyhow, listen for yourselves and make your own minds up. Florence Chandler was born into a wealthy family in 1862 in Alabama in the USA. Not a great time to be born. America was having a civil war and Florence's father had died before she was born. It was said that the unluckiest day of her life, Florence's life, happened during March 1880, when she met her future husband, James Maybrick. They met on the SS Baltic, heading out of New York, bound for Liverpool. During the week's voyage, they had a lightning romance, she was 17 and he was 41. They agreed that if they still felt the same way a year later they would get married. Florence was a frequent traveller to Europe and had spent time at a school in Germany. Her mother Caroline was a baroness on her third marriage. It was thought that as her father had died before she was born that Florence was looking for a father figure. Sorry amateur psychology here. James Maybrick was one of five brothers. He was born on October the 24th 1838. He made his money as a cotton merchant. It's thought that James exaggerated his wealth to Florence and her mother but he was a regular traveller to America commuting from his company's offices in Liverpool to Virginia. James was said to have an overinflated opinion of himself, 
and he actually called himself Lord Jim. It wasn't an issue at the time, but James made his money from the slave trade, as he dealt in cotton from the USA. It was said that Liverpool supported the cause of the Confederacy during the war, as Liverpool and Manchester depended on the cotton being sent from the USA. James had a famous brother called Michael Maybrick. His pseudonym was Stephen Adams. He was a singer and composer. Michael teamed up with a Frederick Weatherly, and they were later referred to as the Lennon and McCartney of 1880s Liverpool. They also had a homosexual relationship before they split. Michael being very famous at the time, so it's strange that he's hardly remembered at all now. James Maybrick had caught malaria in the 1870s and he'd been prescribed arsenic to help cure it. James had become addicted to arsenic and other drugs. One of the beneficial effects of arsenic found by James was it acted as something as a predecessor of Viagra. James became what is known as an arsenic eater when middle class men seemed to take arsenic habitually as they thought it gave them a boost. Mary Howard, a madam of a brothel in Norfolk, Virginia, said that James Maybrick was a regular before his marriage and would take arsenic two or three times an evening and she was afraid that he would die on the premises. Such was his addiction. Apart from his drug habit, James was a womaniser and seems to have been secretly married to a woman called Sarah Robertson who lived at Whitechapel in London. She had five children with James Maybrick. James's offices was next to Whitechapel at Middlesex Street. James seemed keen to keep many secrets from Florence and often travelled to America and London on business from his Liverpool home being away for long periods of time. James Maybrick and Florence Chandler married in Piccadilly, London during July 1881. Michael Maybrick was his brother's best man and he seemed to take a dislike to Florence. It was said that he had a strong attraction to her, although he was homosexual and he hated her for that fact. The couple had a honeymoon in Bournemouth and for the next few years they would commute between Virginia, USA and Liverpool. The Maybricks had opened an American office in the port city of Norfolk in Virginia. In 1884, James was replaced by his brother Edwin as the buying agent for Maybrick & Co. James and Florence were allowed to settle in Liverpool and in early 1888 they leased a large house for five years in an upmarket suburb called Egberth. The house was called Battlecrease House. It was in a few acres with a complement of servants. Alice Yap looked after the children Brearley was the housemaid, Cadwaller the parlour maid, and Elizabeth Humphreys was the cook, and the person probably closest to Florence Maybrick. The Maybricks had two children, Gladys and James. But the marriage was not a success. James' business was not doing that well. He was aloof. He had secrets and addiction problems. And sometime in 1887, Florence discovered that he was keeping a mistress in London who he had children with. 
and from that point they slept in separate beds. There were other problems. Florence's mother took loans from James, which she did not repay, and Florence liked spending money. Florence then seemed to decide that she would start some affairs of her own. She was only 17 when she met James, probably the only person she had known sexually, although there are doubts on this. And hardly surprising when a young woman thinks that maybe a 50-year-old drug addict isn't love's long dream. One of Florence's lovers was thought to be James's younger brother, Edwin. Letters were dis later discovered between them. Anyhow, Florence seemed to have tired of Edwin, and she threw him over for another man, a cotton dealer called Alfred Brearley. During the Victorian period, it seems that adultery of a man was of no great consequence. However, adultery of a married woman was considered different, as the co-respondent was treated as if he had committed an offence against property, the wife being in law a possession of the wronged husband. It was frustrating for the law at the time, as they were unable to punish the woman, as the 1857 Matrimonial Causes Act had eliminated the offence of criminal conversation which had allowed the wronged husband to take a civil action against the offending male. If successful, he could get monetary compensation for his wife's loss of virtue. But since 1857, this option was no longer possible. Cacolded male would just have to suffer the indignation. Nevertheless, it seemed that adultery on the part of a married woman carried an extraordinary sense of guilt. There was also the class element, as a woman of superior class should set an example of purity to the rest of her sex. During March 1889, Florence, who was ignored and cheated on by her husband, decided to go on a trip to London, staying at the Flatman's Hotel in London with Alfred Brearley. She told her husband she was staying at a different hotel, she returned to London for the Grand National. Uh, I beg your pardon. She returned to Liverpool for the Grand National horse race on the 29th of March, 1889, and she was escorted arm in arm for most of the day by Brearley, which caused James Maybrick to explode with rage when she returned home that night after horse racing. James Maybrick was unaware of the adultery but believed he had been humiliated by his wife's behaviour at the races that day. Rather than face up to Brearley, James decided to take it out on his wife, as he seemed worried about the scandal and loss of face to him, with his wife dallying with another man. There was a fierce argument, peace being restored when the servants intervened to calm the situation down, although James had struck his wife and given her a black eye. The next morning, on the 30th of March, 1889, Florence called on her family friend, Dr Hooper. She told him of the problems she was having with the marriage, and they were no longer living as husband and wife, virtually living separate lives under the same roof. The doctor acted as an intermediary and tried to patch things up with the couple. They said they decided on a fresh start, 
and James paid off the debts run up by Lawrence, uh, by Florence, who was by all accounts a spendthrift. Doctor Hopper must have may had some sympathy with Florence, as he treated James Maybrick for a complaint to the liver, the digestive system, and his nerves. He knew that James could be difficult and tended to exaggerate the importance of his complaints and he had a tendency to dose himself with tonics suggested by friends. He openly told the doctor that he took medicines that had not been prescribed and if they were not having the desired effect he would take a double dose. It was also known that James consumed arsenic. His habit reflected the Victorian hypocrisy with him boasting about taking it to some people and angrily denying it to others, depending on who he was speaking to. During the next month, April 1889, James Maybrick's drug-taking seemed to increase. He was addicted to arsenic to such an extent that he regularly mixed it with his food and drink, and he often also took a dose of strychnine. Over the years, he built up a massive tolerance to his drug consumption. The amount he was able to consume would have killed most people. James was concerned he was getting older, and he was dosing himself, hoping to find the elixir of youth. James was known to be a hypochondriac. He was always anxious about his health. It was well known amongst his friends that he took all kinds of powders, tonics and cures. He used to joke with his friends he was taking enough arsenic in a day that would kill a normal person. His brothers knew of his addiction as Florence had confided with them the problems of her husband's addiction by letter. The Poisons Act of 1851 had put restrictions on drugs such as arsenic, but James Maybrick had his suppliers and he seemed to get around the problems of supply. He had been taking poison for so many years that it was now having a, an impact as he aged and he was having to up his dose each time to gain the same effect. He was now 50 years of age and his body wasn't able to could take his drug consumption as it did in the past. On around the 24th of April, Florence bought 20 odd flypapers and soaked them in water in order to extract the arsenic poison that they contained. Florence claimed that she had some eczema and she'd used remedies with arsenic to help clear her complexion. So whereas James was using arsenic to pep up his sex life, Florence was using it to clear her complexion. But this method of using arsenic for pepping the appearance is well known abroad, especially in Germany where Florence had learnt this trick. The soaking of the flypapers caused some comment between the servants in the house. Brearley, who was the housemaid who had to clean the rooms, took the nanny, Alice Yap, to show her the flypapers being soaked. This caused some comment. It was the Black Widow's case of 1884 in Liverpool, where the method of obtaining arsenic from flypaper became well known. This case involved a couple of women from Liverpool who poisoned people they knew for the insurance money. The servants in the house were not thought to have taken it seriously. Florence was trying that they did not think that Florence was trying to extract poison to kill her husband, 
but it was a joke amongst the servants. It was a joke until James died. James Maybrick had made a new will on the 25th of April 1889, leaving everything to his brothers, Michael and Thomas Maybrick, and his two children. It was thought that James had been put under some pressure by his brothers to change his will. Florence was virtually cut out of the will, so that if her husband died she would be financially disadvantaged, as he had a responsibility for his wife whilst he was alive. On the 26th of April 1889, James Maybrick took delivery of drugs from London that he'd ordered. It was not certain where the drugs originated from. He ordered drugs from Dr Fuller, but he may also have ordered drugs elsewhere. James Maybrick almost overdosed on these drugs when he first opened them, vomiting after sampling them. Although not feeling well, James decided he was going to go attend the Wirral horse races on Saturday the 27th of April 1889. Before leaving for the races, and perhaps as a reason for taking the drugs, James had argued with Florence and told her that he suspected her of adultery on her London trip the previous month, and that he'd put an advert in the London newspapers requesting information on her movements. James had been suspicious as his wife had not stayed at the hotel that she said she was going to. On the 27th of April 1889, James left on his horse for the Wirral races and got caught in heavy rain en route. When he arrived at the races, he was soaking wet. His friends were concerned that he was unsteady on his horse and his appearance and his staring eyes caused concern. He quite openly told them that he had taken an overdose of strychnine which was an alkaline poisoning often used as a pesticide. But it was believed by some to be beneficial to health at the time, in small doses, making the user more vital, having a similar effect to arsenal, arsenic. That night, James dined with his friends and he got the shakes. He managed to make it home after midnight, but the next morning he took another hit of his medicine and was feeling terrible. He had difficulty breathing. His muscles were twitching and his neck and limbs were stiff. That next morning it seems that James dosed himself again and was in a bad way. Florence, his wife, ordered the cook to prepare a mixture of mustard and water in order to make James sick so he would vomit up the medicine that he dosed himself with while the doctors were sent for. No fluids were given to James as it was important for him to vomit up any medicine already taken so the stomach would not contract properly if filled with fluid. Florence was trying to make sure her husband expelled the medicine that he'd taken, although she did not know what it was. I have a very popular book from the 1880s that most households would have had called Inquire Within Upon Everything. It gives instructions on how to respond to poisoning. For arsenic, it says that you should scrape rust off any metal at hand, mix it with water, and give large draughts frequently to the patient. Florence threw away the remaining medicine that James had swallowed. And James had swallowed enough strychnine to kill several people. Florence's actions probably saved his life. That evening, James had prepared a meal prepared of arrowroot flour which was good for the digestive problems, 
served by Florence. But he left most of it, and when it was returned to the kitchen, the cook thought that something had been added to it, as it tasted sweeter, possibly vanilla essence. But it was later suggested that it could have been the bitter, it could have been arsenic, that the vanilla was added to disguise the bitter taste of the arsenic that Florence had added to her supper. More rumours. Anyhow, James had recovered sufficiently to attend work on the 1st of May, 1889. But George Smith, one of the employees at the office, said he saw James warm something in a pan. Probably Dubarry's invalid food, but to which he added a powder. Smith said that James had not looked well, and James said that he felt seedy. James had forgotten to take his lunch to work with them that day, and his brother Edwin delivered it to him after it was prepared by Florence. But James complained of being ill again that evening. He was vomiting and had severe diarrhoea. The doctor was sent for and forbade any liquids, even water, apart from the occasional ice cube. With no improvement the next day, the doctor prescribed Fowler's solution, whose active ingredient was arsenic, although a very small amount. Florence would later be accused of adding arsenic to the lunch. But if anything was added to the lunch, other people, such as Edwin, could have had, who later emerged, could have had reasons to dose his brother, also had the opportunity to poison him. At this time, Alice Yap, the governess at the house, was spreading rumours about Florence, spreading rumours that she was poisoning her husband. Yap was opening letters that Florence had asked her to send, giving them to Edwin, who passed them on to his brother Michael. Yap was telling people that Florence was poisoning her husband by soaking flypapers to extract the arsenic, copying the technique from the already mentioned trial some years previously, still well known in Liverpool. On the 7th of May, Alice Yap opened a letter that she had been given to post by Florence. In the letter, Florence was replying to a letter to Alfred Brearley. Alfred Brearley had sent a letter saying that he had not found any advert requesting information about their movements in London, and that he was going away for seven weeks. As the letter was addressed to Alfred Brearley, the temptation not to open it proved too strong for Alice, so she would read the letter. Alice then told a family friend, Mrs Matilda Briggs, who then told Michael Maybrick that the letter was proof that Florence was having an affair and was probably poisoning her husband, and that something very wrong is taking place at the house. Mrs Briggs seems a snake in the grass to Florence. She'd been in, um, she had unmarried sisters who uh, had romantic aspirations in relation to both James Maybrick and Alfred Brearley. They remained friends of the Maybricks, and they were frequent visitors to the Battle Creek's house. Mrs Matilda Briggs had her nose stuck in everyone's business. It was her that Alice Yap had told on the 8th of May that Florence was trying to poison the master, and thank heavens, Mrs Briggs, that you are here. However, to Florence's face, Mrs Briggs acted as a concerned friend. On the 8th of May, Michael Maybrick arrived at the house and took control. He told Florence that he suspected that his brother was not being looked after properly, and he appointed a professional nurse, a nurse Gore, 
who was in fact spying on Florence. Michael demanded to know from the doctors what was causing James's illness. The doctor said that it was his diet. Food that he had taken poisoned him. Michael pointed out to the doctors that James' wife had been unfaithful to him and purchased flypapers just before his illness. He did not mention the other medicines that James had been taking, but he did suggest that his brother's wife was trying to poison her husband. Florence was now under suspicion of poisoning James. Michael had asked Dr Carter, who was Michael's doctor, to test his brother for arsenic poisoning. Tests were taken on James's body wastes, but there was no indication of arsenic poisoning. Although it's not known how efficient the doctor's testing was, but he did run his tests twice, and each time they proved negative, and so seemed to prove that Florence was not trying to poison her husband. But these tests results were never made available to the defence, and it was suggested that the doctors had not discovered any poison in James's bedpan. They decided that Michael was wrong about his suspicions on poison and had not bothered to look for any other poisons that may have been poisoning his brother. Michael Maybrick accused Florence of tampering with James's medicine. Florence must have realised that she was suspected of wishing harm to her husband. Michael walked into a sick room and bellowed, Florrie, how dare you tamper with the medicine? After the nurse had asked Florence to remove sediment from her bottle. Michael made sure that everyone had heard him and Florence was distraught and went to the kitchen to weep telling the cook, Mrs Humphreys, that they were trying to blame her for her husband's illness. Mrs Humphreys and the parlour maid, Mary Cadawalla, had no doubts that Florence was innocent. Humphreys said that they'd all been joking about the flypapers being soaked, making references to the 1884 poisoning case in Liverpool. When, when they killed people with arsenic by flypapers. But the joking was all done openly. No one was serious about it. Now some people seem to want to turn the joke into accusations. Michael and his brother Edwin were trying to persuade James to sign some papers. Florence was now banned from seeing her husband by herself and she was told she could not have any visits by friends to the house, and she was kept in virtual house arrest. The servants were not being respectful to her, being fed rumours of her wishing her husband ill. It was thought that James wanted to spend time with his wife, but would not have agreed with what his two controlling brothers were doing at his house, but he was too ill to intervene. James died on the 11th of May, 1889. It was now thought that his death was a result of exhaustion caused by gastroenteritis, caused by food poisoning. It was also possible that death may have been also caused by the effects of arsenic withdrawal and the fact that James had caught a chill while attending Wirral races on the 27th of April. There were also suggestions that James had been murdered by his brothers Michael and Edwin, who were giving him poison. Florence Maybrick was said to have collapsed in a swoon and had to be carried into the bedroom after learning of her husband's death. 
it's more probable that she was drugged with chloral hydrate to knock her out, while evidence could be prepared in the house to blame her for her husband's death. Matilda Briggs, her sister Mrs Hughes, Alice Yap, Michael Maybrick and his brother Edwin Maybrick could search the house with Florence being unconscious. They were allowed to plant evidence and accuse Florence, as all five seemed to have wished Florence ill. Michael Maybrick kept Florence prisoner in the room in the house and told the servants that she was no longer mistress of the house. Michael also gave orders that the children had to leave the house without seeing their mother. The children had been brought in to say goodbye to their father that morning, the morning he died, as it was clear that he was very near death. The servants were told that if anybody called for Florence, they were to be told that she was too ill to see anybody. On May the 13th, there was an inquest on James Maybrick, which was held publicly, and the servants were questioned in a court setting. This inquest ruled that he had died through poisoning, although the evidence did not indicate such a verdict. It was tittle-tattle and rumour that drove the poison verdict. The quantity of arsenic found in James Maybrick's body was one-tenth of a grain in total from his digestive system, which was consistent with an arsenic eater who had stopped the habit for some time, perhaps a month. The effects of arsenic withdrawal may have been a factor in his death. Interestingly, the first foreman of the jury of the inquest, a Mr Dale Gleish, knew James Maybrick and knew him to take powders. When the coroner discovered this, he dismissed Dalgleish from the jury. Florence's mother visited her at Battlecrease House just before her arrest by the police and found her daughter in a filthy bed being detained under police guard. There was no latrine other than a bucket in the room. When the Baroness started speaking to her daughter in French, she was told she was only allowed to speak English as the police and nurses were taking notes on their conversation. The next day Florence was placed under arrest by Liverpool police, probably under the influence of Michael Maybrick, who as a famous person seemed to have much influence over the actions of those who wished Florence Maybrick harm. Florence was not allowed to attend her husband's funeral. His body had been exhumed in June 1889, a couple of weeks after burial, for further tests for arsenic poisoning. The trial started at Liverpool Assizes. There was some talk of the trial being held in London as a result of local rumour and speculation making a fair trial difficult in Liverpool. But the trial went ahead locally. It was said that cost played a part in the final decision where to hold the case. But there was a concession in that the jury, an all-male jury, came from the Lancashire area and not just Liverpool. The opening day was on July the 31st, 1889. There was much comment and speculation in the press and a great demand for places in the public gallery at the court. The newspapers looked into Florence's background and there were hints that her mother may have had something to do with the deaths of her first two husbands and now she was living separately from her third husband. The judge was Sir James Fitzjames Stephen, 
incidentally the uncle of Virginia Woolf. The judge had recently been ill, probably a stroke, and was showing early signs of senility. He would die in 1894 in a mental asylum. He had to be continually corrected during the course of the trial after making mistakes and giving misleading information. To be kind, it's best to say that he was not at his best during the trial. Another interesting fact is that Judge Stephen's second son, who would also die in asylum two years before his father, was a larger-than-life character who was a Jack the Ripper suspect. The main barrister for the Crown was John Addison, and the main barrister for the defence was Charles Russell. Florence pleaded not guilty of the charges made against her of murder. I am presenting a summary of the trial in chronological order, which will mean that some aspects of it will be repeated, but hopefully with a different emphasis depending on whether the defence or prosecution is examining the evidence. But it is necessary to repeat some points to understand the flow of the trial. The prosecution opened the court case telling of Florence's London visit supposedly to visit a sick aunt, and the affair with Alfred Brearley. Whereas James Maybrick's extramaterial, extramaterial relationships were glossed over, those of Florence's were considered unforgivable. Then it told of the Grand National Incident and the resulting fight, which was smoothed over by family friends Dr Hopper and Mrs Briggs and the fact that a couple of weeks later Florence bought flypapers which were soaked to extract arsenic. There was a long explanation on the nature and effects of arsenic. It was explained that after vomiting there's little relief. There are burning pains and irritation in the throat and stomach. The throat can feel as if there's hairs in it. There's also cramps in a furred tongue and intense thirst. And there's also a feeling of a need to evacuate the bowels being unable to do so. If smaller doses are administered, the same symptoms will be produced. But within a couple of days, if no arsenic is ingested, the patient will get better. But if the poison continues to be taken, the patient will die. Maybrick claimed complained of all these symptoms. The prosecution said that Florence claimed that to Alice Yap, that all doctors were fools and they were accused by Alice Yap of tampering with medicine, in particular the Valentine beef essence, which was one of the products that the doctors had prescribed. It was claimed that a bottle of Valentine's meat juice contained arsenic that Florence had added. The prosecution then proceeded to list a number of other items that contained arsenic in the house. Valentine's meat juice was made from leftover trimmings of cuts of meat. It was patented in 1870 as a form of nourishment for those unable to digest food normally. It was very well known and prescribed by doctors, similar to bone broth, a food for those that were very ill or invalids. The post-mortem discovered traces of arsenic in some parts of the body. The body was buried, but dug up after a couple of weeks of further testing. Arsenic was found in the liver and the digestive system in small quantities, very small quantities. The prosecution claimed that Florence had administered arsenic until professional nurses were called in to look after the patient three days before his death. 
The poisons in the house were found after James's death. The prosecution also talked of a letter Florence had sent to her one-time lover, Alfred Brearley, saying that she did not want him to go on a long trip he had planned and that her husband was sick until death. The prosecution suggesting that she did not want her lover to go on a long trip as her husband was about to die and they could carry on their relationship unhindered. The defence argued that the phrase sick until death was just an expression that was popular at that time. After James's death there was a discussion on the items found in the house which may have contained poison. There were 163 bottles found in the house in his office of various medicines, these being accessible to anyone in the house or office. Such a quantity of arsenic was of course consistent with the self-medication of an arsenic by James Maybrick himself. Strangely, the bottles of poison found at the house often had the label of what they contained, such as solution of morphia, but had the chemist's name scratched out, so it was impossible to trace their source. It seemed that the bottles were tampered with, and some comments were put on the bottles, such as, poison for cats. This seemed to be a pointed slant at Florence, who was known to be a cat lover, suggesting a sick joke on behalf of someone at the house creating the labels themselves. There was also black arsenic, arsenic mixed with charcoal, that was found by Michael, found by Michael, after the initial search and was handed to the police. The prosecution considered the post-mortem showing the body contained traces of arsenic and the prosecution explained how the arsenic would have killed him. But it would have passed out his body before death. The prosecution insisting that Florence had given her husband arsenic without his knowledge over a period of time. The prosecution then called their witnesses. Michael Maybrick, being the first telling of his suspicions after being told that his brother's adulterous wife was poisoning him. Cross-examined by the defence, Michael said that he'd been told that his brother had been dosing himself with medicines and perhaps arsenic as an aphrodisiac. But when he challenged his brother, he was told that it was all damn lies, so he did not pursue the matter. Michael admitted poor recollection and that he destroyed important letters that informed him of his brother's condition, which may have been beneficial to Florence's defence. Long after the case, accusations would be made against Michael, wanted to kill James and frame his wife, and he controlled certain friends and servants of his brother's James and his own brother Edwin. This will be investigated in a later podcast. Dr Hopper was the next witness for the prosecution who said that James Maybrick was a healthy man who tended to exaggerate his problems. He was prescribed nerve tonics which did not contain arsenic, although he understood from James that he had taken arsenic-based medicine in the past. At the end of his evidence, Hopper downgraded James's health as being fairly healthy after claiming that he was very healthy. Hopper told of how Florence had told him that she could not bear her husband being near her. When cross-examined, Hopper admitted that James did dose himself with medicine 
that he had not been pres- prescribed and was a hypochondriac. He admitted that James had taken sexual nerve tonics to act as an aphrodisiac, which contained strychnine. Florence had asked the doctor to tell him of the dangers of taking the medicines he was ordering from quack doctors. Hopper told the court that a sudden cessation of taking stimulants such as the strychnine could prove risky. The prosecution then called other witnesses such as Edwin Maybrick, who was thought to have had an affair with Florence, whose evidence when deconstructed by cross-examination did not amount to much, although there was a strong suspicion that evidence to James's drug addiction was removed by the brothers after his death. Edwin Maybrick had been caught giving James brandy and soda after being told by the doctors that he was to receive no fluids. This aspect was never pursued and suggests that Edwin had been in a position to poison his brother or at least to endanger his health. The chemist that sold Florence the flypapers admitted in cross-examination that most sales of flypapers out of the summer season were for cosmetic purposes when women extracted the arsenic and used it as a skin cleaner or eye drops or hair tonic. Dr Charles Fuller, the doctor for James Maybrick, he said that he examined James Maybrick when he visited London on the 14th of April. 1889. He was complaining of numbness in his limbs. Fuller, who appeared quite an arrogant character, said there was nothing wrong with him. He was suffering from indigestion. Fuller thought that James had been unwisely taking unprescribed tonics that were not good for him and may have been causing him some depression. Strangely, Fuller said that he'd never heard of arsenic being taken as a tonic or for cosmetic reasons. Equally strangely, Fuller claimed that James Maybrick had told Dr Fuller that he'd been taking a pill that Fuller had prescribed for his brother Michael. Fuller said that he had not prescribed any pills for Michael, so what pills Michael had been given, been given James. This was not followed up by the defence team, or for some reason they did not pursue the story of the mysterious pills. There was also a letter written by James Maybrick that says that medicines supplied by Dr Fuller were killing him. But this letter was not made available to the defence and was suppressed by the prosecution. A number of chemists were then called in to ascertain what was in the medication taken by James Maybrick. Alice Yap was the next witness to be told of the quarrels and flypapers and her opening the letters that Florence had asked her to post. She read them and then passed them on to Edwin Maybrick. Yap did not come across well in cross-examination. Neither did the other servants when they gave their evidence. It seemed that the other servants in the house were gossiping about the events in the house, which I suppose, given the events, were hardly surprising. Mrs Humphreys, the cook, said that she had a conversation with Florence when she was most upset, saying that Michael Maybrick had undermined her position at the house and she turned out of her husband's sick room and was not allowed to nurse him. The doctors also called Dr Richard Humphreys, who treated James Maybrick at the end of his life. He had not been James's doctor, but was called on as he lived nearby. When questioned, Humphreys said that the tests had been carried 
uh, carried out to test for metal poisoning, arsenic poisoning, but there were no positive results. The doctor carried out the post-mortem in the room in which James had died. The stomach and intestines showed a, a raw red inflammation and the doctor gave the cause of death as arsenic or some other irritant poisoning such as food poisoning as the symptoms were consistent with such poisoning. When cross-examined, the doctor admitted that he had no experience of arsenic or similar poisoning and that Michael Maybrick was the person who suggested that the cause of death was arsenic poisoning. This obviously strongly influenced Humphreys. It also appeared that Michael Maybrick was putting ideas into Dr Humphreys' mind by telling him other events prejudicial to Florence Maybrick, his sister-in-law. Dr Humphrey said that he thought James had died of acute congestion of the stomach or gastroenteritis before Michael Maybrick insisted that he was poisoned. It seemed that symptoms for arsenic and gastroenteritis were exactly the same. However, Dr Humphreys asserted a number of times that he did not believe that arsenic was the cause of death or that Florence Maybrick was the cause of any type of poisoning as James Maybrick had a long history of dosing himself. Dr Humphreys was asked about the tonics prescribed for James Maybrick. He mentioned cascara, nitrohydrochloric acid, strychnine, brucinin, nux vomica, plumber's pills, anatomy, the Victorian cure-all, chloridine, antiparin, Mercury, prussic acid, bromide of potassium, tincture of hypotassium, bromide of ammonia, uh, of ammonia, jeparandi, cocaine, and other drugs were listed, to which he replied they were all administered to improve the general health. The doctor said that Florence was anxious and careful in her attention and did everything that he requested her to do to care for her husband. Dr Humphreys and the earlier Dr Hopper both claimed that James Maybrick was proud of his knowledge of drugs, in particular the properties of arsenic which he was in the habit of drugging himself with. Dr William Carter then gave evidence. He was a very experienced doctor who concluded that James was suffering from acute dyspepsia he did not suspect poison. He was given a bottle of beef juice that Florence was said to have tried to give the patient surreptitiously and found that it contained arsenic, although the amount of arsenic found in, mis uh, found in the meat juice was described as not sufficient to poison a child. Then there was a long and complicated discussion on the effects of arsenic poisoning. Then a number of policemen and chemists gave evidence regarding what they found at the house after James Maybrick had died and that they had been called to investigate. A lot of arsenic was found at the house in different receptacles including medication that had been prescribed for James Maybrick. Tests on the body of James Maybrick proved inconclusive. There were traces of arsenic in his body but he had been known to take this on a regular basis in the past. There was no evidence of arsenic in the places where it would be expected to be found if he had been recently poisoned. Traces were found in the liver, the kidneys and the intestines, 
but nowhere else. It was suggested that his diet may have caused his death, as he was not allowed food and fluids apart from Valentin's beef juice. Maybrick was being effectively starved when his body was fighting illness. Beef tea, or beef juice, was not sufficient to sustain him. James Maybrick's death was more likely the result of a, a want of a proper nutrition than that of a small amount of poison discovered at post-mortem. In fact, the symptoms disclosed would be much more likely to follow a severe attack of gastroenteritis, succeeded by practical deprivation of food. Nurse Wilson, Nurse Gore and Nurse Galloway, all of whom nursed James Maybrook in his final days, were called to give evidence, which didn't amount to very much, except all thought that Florence Maybrick was gentle and friendly with her husband, and he was always pleased to see her. The staff at Flatman's Hotel were then called to confirm that she was having an affair in March with Alfred Brawley. Dr Thomas Stevenson was supposed to be the spar witness for the prosecution. He was a forensic medicine and chemistry lecturer at Guy's Hospital who'd carried out further tests on the body looking for arsenic poisoning and found tiny amounts in the body, but certainly not enough to kill a man. But he thought that James had died from arsenic and his body had expelled the poison. The defence argued this did not coincide with the opinions of her doctors who had attended James before his death. Again, the trial spent a long time analysing the effects of arsenic, which can be said to affect people in different ways. Basically, the prosecution witnesses were saying there could be no trace of arsenic in a body after testing, but this did not mean there was no arsenic there, it may just be hidden. The body absorbs the arsenic in different organs from the stomach via the blood. As a rule, the arsenic ingested eventually passes out of the body with water within a fortnight, and there will be no trace of it unless more arsenic is taken. The traces of arsenic in James Maybrick's body suggested that it was the 3rd of May when he last took arsenic. Dr Stevenson said he thought James had died from arsenic poisoning, but under cross-examination it seemed that he did not have any experience as someone like James Maybrick, who had taken arsenic habitually for years along with other poisons. Also, Stevenson seemed to wobble under cross-examination after being so sure when talking to the prosecution. When pressed for details, he seemed to falter, and his evidence did not seem so impressive. Dr Stevenson was caught out by the defence barrister when asked whether there is any distinct symptom of arsenic poisoning which could distinguish itself from gastroenteritis. Stevenson replied that there was no distinctive symptom of arsenic poisoning. The diagnostic thing is to find the arsenic. Stevenson thus fell into the trap because there was no evidence that James had died from arsenic poisoning. The quantity of arsenic found in James Maybrick's body was about a tenth of a grain, which was insufficient to cause death. The smallest quantity of arsenic found to have caused a person's death was two grains, and this was a woman who had no tolerance for the poison, unlike James who had built up a massive tolerance over the years. The opening speech of the defence started with describing Florence as a friendless lady in the dock who had been subject to rumours and lies. 
the defence said that the doctors treating James had never suspected arsenic poisoning. Later doctors said that the illness was caused by an irritant poison which could include tainted or impure meat or anything that could cause gastroenteritis in the stomach or the intestine. Although there were traces of arsenic poison in the body, there were many ways that could explain its presence other than being deliberately administered by Florence. As James was an arsenic addict, it's more likely that the traces of arsenic in his body were the results of his addiction. The defence argued that Florence Maybrick had told Dr Hopper that she was worried over her husband's habit of dosing himself and she asked for help in stopping in him stopping the habit. Then the defence told of how Florence was disposed from the position of mistress of her own home and from looking after her husband and made the object of suspicion as a result of rumour and innuendo. No one had the courage to directly accuse her or was friendly enough to warn her of the allegations being made against her or to see what explanations she had to offer. The defence argued that it had not been proved that death had been caused by arsenic and that the most likely cause was gastroenteritis, which came on at the start of the Wirral races on the 27th of April, probably caused by an error of diet, made worse by the strange course of treatment and a chill picked up from the races. Regarding the arsenic flypapers, it was asked why Florence would buy them from a shop in her own neighbourhood, where she was well known, and in each case the flypapers were sent to the house in a parcel. She had the opportunity to buy the arsenic on a recent trip to London where no one knew her. Also, there was so much arsenic in the house, stored there by James as a result of his addiction, it would have been easier for her to take some of, the, uh, of his supplies if she had a mind to kill him. This would allow her to escape detection. The defence caused witnesses that came from the USA to give evidence that James was a long-term arsenic addict. James bought arsenic from the chemist shops and took arsenic in his beef tea, stirring it in with a spoon. Then a local Liverpool chemist, Mr Heaton, gave evidence that the man he had identified as James Maybrick was in the habit of coming into his shop for a pick-me-up. Mr Heaton, who made his own tonics, similar to Fowler's solution, that popular tonic, Heaton said that James never gave his name However, there was a difference, as unlike most of his other customers, James required an addition to his tonic. He asked for drops of liquor arsenicus, arsenic in solution, to be added. And over time, the number of drops he added increased from three to seven. James told Heaton that it was an aid to his digestion. Mr Heaton said that James was a regular customer for 18 months up to October 1887 after which time the shop closed down when he retired. Heaton came forward after seeing a picture of James in the local newspaper. He said James would take five wine glasses of the tonic each day. It was estimated to be a third of a grain in uh, those five glasses, so a third of a grain of arsenic each day. A Dr Drysdale next gave evidence. He was another doctor that... Uh, that the hypochondriac James consulted in late 1887 and early 1888. James was complaining for three months of pains in the head. 
He said he was never free from pain except from in the early morning. After drinking too much wine, he would become numb from his left leg and his hand and his skin would break out in a rash. Drysdale asked what medicine he had been taking and James replied, nitrohydrochloric acid, strychnine, hydric of potash and several others. Drysdale thought he was suffering from nervous dyspepsia, a digestive problem brought on by anxiety, and also he was a hypochondriac. When Drysdale was cross-examined by the prosecution, they tried to discredit him for his views on homeopathy, homeopathy, which was the reason that James came for him from a different viewpoint. William J. Thompson was a friend of James Maybrick and a wholesale druggist who met with James at the Willow Races on April the 27th. James was shaking and when William asked why this was, James replied that he had taken a double dose of his special nerve tonic. Charles Tiny was next to give evidence. He was the defensive star witness, an expert on forensic medicine. He had experience of over 40 arsenic poisoning cases. He argued that James' symptoms were consistent with both arsenic and gastroenteritis. Tidy explained what foods were likely to cause symptoms, saying what came to mind were lobster, sausage, cheese. He said there was one remarkable case where he recalled when a number of people were made ill by cheese and it was thought they'd suffered arsenic poisoning. Tidy explained that arsenic was eliminated by the body through the urine and thus the kidneys. Arsenic tends to decrease the quantity of urine and repeated doses will lessen the efficiency of the kidneys. There were quantities of arsenic in the liver and the intestines and the traces in the kidneys of James Maybrick. But there's no possibility of his death being the result of arsenic poisoning. Otherwise there would have been arsenic found elsewhere in the body. Tidy also gave a list of the symptoms of arsenic poisoning and argued that three or four of the most important symptoms were not present in James Maybrick. He did not die from arsenic. Dr Tidy concluded that death was due to some irritant poisoning causing gastroenteritis, some form of food poisoning. He then gave other foods the well-known for causing such illness, fish, mussels. He said that hair had caused it on many occasions. The next doctor to give evidence was Dr Rowden McNamara, an RS surgeon who had much experience of arsenic poisoning cases. Rawdon argued that in his experience, someone troubled with a weak stomach, dyspepsia, who was exposed to wet conditions for some time, as James was at the Whittle races on April the 27th, the result would be blood from the surface of the body driven into the internal organs, including the stomach, which could cause congestion. And then, if an error of diet is made, the result would be gastroenteritis, which could extend down to the bowels. This discussion went on for a long time in court, some medical people agreeing, others not. After the trial, Tidy and McNamara published a pamphlet, The Maybrick Trial, a toxicological study, showing that Maybrick did not die from arsenic poisoning. These were the two most eminent toxicologists in the country. These two professors realised that the trial was a stitch-up and the pamphlet proved that the trial's verdict was wrong. 
a pathologist, Mr. Paul, who had carried out a great amount of post-mortems of both gastroenteritis and arsenic, said that he would have expected Mabrick's bothy to have more spotting if he had died of arsenic poisoning. It seemed that the medical doctors were almost unanimous that death was not the result of arsenic poisoning. There was a dramatic development as Florence Maybrick said that she wished to address the court. This was most unusual, as before 1898, a defendant could not give evidence for themselves. If they were in the witness box, they could only answer questions. I've included the whole of Florence's speech here, as it's quite short, and it's easy on the ear, as unlike the barrister, she does not use three words when one word will do. Florence's Statement I wish to make a statement, as well as I can to you, a few facts in connection with the dreadfully crushing charge that's been made against me, namely the willful and deliberate poisoning of my husband, the father of my dear children. I wish, I wish principally, uh, principally to refer to the use of flypapers to the bottle and to the bottle of meat essence. The flypapers were bought with the intention of using as a cosmetic. Before my marriage, and since for many years, I've been in the habit of using a face wash prescribed to me by Dr. Craigs of Brooklyn. It consisted principally of arsenic, tincture of benzene, elderflower water, and some other ingredients. This prescription I lost or mislaid last April, and as at that time I was suffering from a slight eruption of the face, I thought I would like to make a substitute myself. I was anxious to get rid of this eruption before I went to a ball on the 30th of that month, 30th of March, 1889. When I'd been in Germany, many of my young friends there and I had used a solution derived from flypapers, elder water, lavender water and other things mixed, and then applied to the face with a handkerchief, well soaked in the solution. I used the flypapers in the same way to avoid the evaporation of the scent as it was necessary to exclude the air as much as possible. And for that purpose I placed over the flypapers a folded towel, and over that another folded towel. My mother's been aware for many years that I've used an arsenical cosmetic in, my, in solution. My lord, I now wish to refer to the bottle of meat essence. On Thursday night, the 9th of May, after Nurse Gore had given my husband beef tea, I went and sat on the bed beside him. He complained to me of being very sick and very depressed, and he implored to me to give him this powder, which he referred to earlier in the evening, which I declined to give him. I was overwrought, terribly anxious, miserably unhappy, and this evident distress utterly unnerved me. He told me this powder would not harm him, and that I could put it in his food. I then consented my look. My lord, I had not one true or honest friend in that house. I had no one to consult, no one to advise me. I was disposed, deposed from my position as mistress in my own house, and from the position of attending upon my husband. Notwithstanding that, he was so ill. Notwithstanding the evidence of the nurses and servants, I may say 
that he wished me to have me with him. He missed me whenever I was not with him. Whenever I was out of the room, he asked for me. And for four days before he died, I was not allowed to give him a piece of ice without it being taken out of my hand. When I found the powder, I took it to the inner room with the beef juice and pushed it through the door. I upset the bottle, and in order to make up the quantity of fluid spilt, I added a considerable amount of water. On returning to the room, I found my husband asleep, and I placed the bottle on a table by the window. When he awoke, he had a choking sensation in his throat, and vomited, and that he appeared a little better. He did not ask for the powder again, and I was anxious not to give it to him. I removed the bottle from the small table, where it would attract his attention, to the top of the washstand, where he could not see it. There I left it. My lord, until I believe Mr Michael Maybrick took possession of it, until Tuesday the 14th of May, the Tuesday of my husband's death, until a few minutes before, Mr Brainy made this terrible charge against me. No one in that house had informed me of the fact that a death certificate had not been refused, and the post-mortem examination had taken place, or that there was any reason to suppose my husband had died from anything other than natural causes. It was only when Mrs Briggs alluded to the presence of arsenic and the meat juice that I was made aware of the nature of the powder of my husband had asked me to give to him. I then attempted to make an explanation to Mrs Briggs, such as I am stating to your lordship, when a policeman interrupted the conversation and put a stop to it. In conclusion, I only have to add that for the love of our children and for the sake of their future, a perfect reconciliation had been taken place between us, that on the day before his death I made a full and free confession to him and received his entire forgiveness for that fearful wrong I'd done him. This apparently was when Florence admitted her adultery with Alfred. The defence wanted to call witnesses to verify the statement that had been made by Florence, but Judge Stevens said it would be unlawful to do so, as the statement had not been made under oath. Then came the closing speeches for the defence, which are only briefly summarised the main points here to save repeating the same points again. The defence said that it was not proved that James Maybrick had died from arsenic poisoning, and there was no evidence that Florence had given him any arsenic. All the medical doctors said that if James had died from arsenic poisoning, there would be more arsenic still in his body at death. James Maybrick was an arsenal addict of long standing, as far back as 1878, and took a variety of different unprescribed medicines. As he was a hypochondriac, he considered himself an expert on poisons, drugs and medicines. Florence had voiced her concerns over her husband's addiction to family members and doctors. If Florence had intended to poison her husband, she would not have been so open. She would have got rid of the evidence instead of letting the police find it after his death. Witnesses after James's death said that, taken, that he had taken a double dose of his medicine when he was ill the next day. Florence calls for the doctor and tries to make him sick to get rid of the poison that he himself has taken. Also, they said that James's brothers had conspired against Florence and allowed rumours to spread her against her unchecked. 
The closing speech of the prosecution argued that James was not an addict, and it was nonsense to suggest that people had mixed arsenic with food and drink, what is known as arsenic eaters. Arsenic eaters did not exist, as far as the prosecution were concerned. The prosecution did not think that James took arsenic when he lived in the USA, and any tonics that he took did not contain arsenic. They said Florence had lied about her husband taking medicines. She lied about the reasons for her extracting poison from the flypapers. And also that anyone capable of being unfaithful to their husband was capable of any kind of duplicity, deceit and falsehood, including murder. The prosecution said that the doctors that gave evidence had selected their evidence and information given to the court. The reason that Florence left incriminating evidence behind was because those that commit offences such as murder are not always careful to remove evidence for it. The summing up for the prosecution was all accusation and not backed up by any fact or evidence. Normally I would read the judge's summing up with interest but in this case it wasn't worth the effort. Judge Stevens did not have much of a reputation of a judge. He said that his rise to the bar was slow. He'd suffered illness and gone senile. However, he was considered recovered sufficiently to resume as a judge by 1885. But by 1891 was told he had to stand down. During the Maybick trial, Judge Stevens got a number of facts incorrect. He had to be reminded of things and corrected on a number of occasions, all of this suggesting that the stroke that he'd suffered a few years previously had blown some fuses in his brain and that it had been a mistake to allow him to resume his duties as a judge. He did not make the case easy to understand for the jury, one of whom could not read or write. The medical witnesses did not agree on a number of points. The judge spent several hours trying to disentangle their points but only complicated matters further. Judge Stevens did advise the jury that it was easy to conceive how such a horrible woman should be plotting the death of her husband in order that she may be left at liberty to follow her own degrading vices. She was in a position to allow herself to be assailed to fearful and terrible temptations. In essence, the judge was saying that the woman was capable of committing adultery was easily capable of committing murder. Commentators at the time argued the judge was only a shadow of his former self and it was suspected that he was exhibiting signs of insanity. As I said, he died in 1894 in a private lunatic asylum in Ipswich. However, it was said that after the trial, Judge Stevens had expressed doubts over the evidence saying that it was the only case out of the 979 that he had judged upon where there were doubts about the facts. At the end of the trial, while waiting for the jury to decide the result, Judge Stevens is supposed to have said to the prosecution, well, they can't convict her on that evidence. The chief prosecutor was said to have nodded his head in agreement. This was alleged as witnessed by newspaper reporters. Commentators on the case argued that it was Judge Stevens' summing up of the case that the jury, to the jury that caused Florence to be found guilty of the, of the case that was based on the gossip of servants and then manipulated by Michael and Edwin Maybrick to get rid of Florence. The jury came up with their guilty verdict after 35 minutes of discussion. This meant that Florence was sentenced to death.
The guilty verdict seemed something of a surprise, as even the general public seemed to think that the case had not been proved, and the public turned on the decision to find Florence guilty. The media now said that the trial was a farce. The jury clearly did not understand the evidence. Further tests were carried out on the samples of James Maybrick's intestines to try to prove murder. The test was carried out to find out microscopic fibres of flypapers, but there was no trace. It was said on the report that it's a fact beyond contradiction that flypapers were not used to poison James Maybrick. Within half an hour of the trial, a petition against the verdict was signed by every junior barrister in every Queen's Council present at the trial that day. The verdict was seen as a farce. The, pe the person had been condemned to death at a time when there was no court of a criminal appeal. This was eventually established by the Criminal Appeal Act of 1907. The Home Secretary, Henry Matthews, reduced the death penalty to life imprisonment. In the statement, it said that the prisoner, Florence, had attempted to administer poison with intent to murder him, but there's reasonable doubt to doubt whether his death was caused by arsenic. So, if there was reasonable doubt, as admitted by the Home Secretary, Florence Maybrook should have been found not guilty and should have been set free at once. There is no middle ground. A guilty verdict has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Every judge in every court case tells the jury this fact. Even Judge Stevens had told the members of his jury that it was essential that James Maybrick had died of arsenic if Mrs Maybrick was to be found of guilty. If Florence was guilty, it had to be proved that James Maybrick had died from arsenic poisoning, that Florence had administered the poison to her husband and the intention was to kill. None of these were proved by the court as admitted by the Home Secretary. Florence had not been charged with attempted murder, but this was why she was now in prison. There was, a, there was another aspect of the trial that was troubling. During the trial, Florence Maybrick was denied any contact with family and friends. She had no contact with the outside world. She was not allowed even to defend herself in court. She was denied the proper right to defence with much evidence in her favour held back from the court that could have set her free. Her defence was not allowed to, not allowed access to documents, witnesses or evidence. Florence had little motive to murder her husband. The financial provisions Maybrick had made for her and his, ch and his children in his will were such that she would have been far better off with him alive, but legally separated from him. However, some people held the view that Florence had poisoned her husband because he was about to divorce her, which in Victorian society would have seen her ruined. An even more compelling motive may have been the prospect of losing custody of her beloved children. I wanted to include what happened to Lawrence after she was sentenced to death, but I think the podcast is long enough. I may add a shorter podcast to tell her story, which was not a happy one. After the death sentence was dropped and substituted to life imprisonment, she was finally released in 1904 and returned to the USA. We will be returning to the subject of Michael Maybrick on a later podcast in early 2021. He is suspected of by summer being Jack the Ripper, and he seems a good candidate, well, as good as anybody else. 
Obviously, the subject of Jack the Ripper is huge, and I'll need to do a lot of research, which is what I intend to do over lockdown Christmas. I'll be concentrating on Michael Maybrick. I know the area of East London quite well. would like to visit the area again, but given present circumstances, this may not be possible. Well, we'll have to see what happens on that front. Until then, I would like to thank Damselfly for supplying the background music. And I'd like you all to thank you all for listening or to downloading. And until next time, I'll say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.